Welcome to Voices from the Front Lines, your national movement-building show. I'm in studio with Channing Martinez, our co-host and uh, organizer in the street. And we're also on the phone with Claude Marx, one of the founders of the Freedom Archives, and Nathaniel Moore. They have both put together a rather amazing uh, online video tribute to George Jackson on the 50th anniversary of his assassination. Uh, Claude, Nathaniel, are you on with us? Yes. Uh, Can you hear me? Hear you. Is that Nathaniel? Uh, I am. Thanks for having us. Yeah, and uh, great. So we've got a lot of things to figure out today on the show. Uh, The first thing I just want to start with is that we've been doing several shows about George Jackson, and the National Prisoners Movement today. Uh, There's amazing news that just came out, and maybe, Nathaniel, you have the other names, but that Governor Andrew Cuomo has just pardoned David Gilbert, who was in prison for, I believe, 40 years, and is a very fine person, one of the founders of SDS, and it just shows life is complicated. We all fought uh, Cuomo for many, many years, all the progressives and radicals in New York. There's obviously issues of why he was uh, pushed out, you know, to resign. On the other hand, he has just pardoned, I believe, five political prisoners that almost no one would do. So I'm not here to weigh the factors, but as Mao said, you got to divide one into two. And certainly for the political prisoners who, you know, there's just no constituency out there to, to support as a majority sentiment freeing political prisoners right now. Although, as you learn about from this show, 
once upon a time, there was at least a much, much stronger movement in that direction. So we want to thank Governor Cuomo, former Governor Cuomo. We certainly want to welcome David Gilbert. This must be beyond miraculous, and we'll be doing much more work around the other prisoners who were free today, and they still have to go before the parole boards. So even with a, I think it's a pardon, we have to keep our fingers crossed. Um, George Jackson, on their 50th anniversary, what uh, and Nathaniel, why did you do this? I mean, it's, it's right up your alley, but still a lot of work. I'm very honored to be part of us. Tell us about the 99 Books Project. What, how did you conceptualize it? And what was it like making it happen? Because I know it was a lot of work. Well, maybe I could start just briefly. Um, we did a, an audio documentary about what happened uh, in San Quentin uh, back some years ago, um, 2001, in fact. Wow. Um, and um, throughout, you know, when I was a you know, program producer at KPFA in Berkeley and, and a street reporter, um, we've always been pretty plugged in to, you know, what happens at San Quentin, the Soledad Brothers case, uh, the Marin Courthouse Rebellion of August 7th, 1970. And of course, this anniversary was looming. And we felt given the wealth of materials that we have historically and we wanted to create some interest in George Jackson as a political thinker and as a teacher um, in addition to everything else that he is. Um, and we also felt by doing some contemporary reflections with people both who knew him but also people who are, you know, of a generation to be influenced by him. Um, we wanted to put something substantial together that would give people a portal on some of the more serious and long-term commitments of actually understanding the world and placing revolutionary politics in a context. So that, that would be... Yeah, that's a pretty great to me, the con conception. It's a pretty great opening. Uh, let me try to get our listeners to heads around the different things we're trying to do. The first thing is this is a fund drive day. And here we are fortunately able to talk about George Jackson on the 50th anniversary of his assassination and more importantly celebrating his life uh, because we're on KPFK, because we can talk about Black revolutionary thought and anti-imperialist thought. So 818-985-5735. Uh, I always offer my book as a premium because I can. It's There's no alleged premium now, but I have written this book called Playbook for Progressives. The 16 Qualities for Successful Organizers. It's a great book. I'll tell you about it if you haven't heard by now. So you can give as much as you want. And if you give $100 or more, uh, you will get a copy of my book. There's another book I wrote, Comrade George, an investigation into the life 
political thought and assassination of George Jackson that you cannot get as a premium because there's only about 10 or 15 in circulation that I know of, and I'm trying to get as many as I can. Uh, then there's the freeing of David Gilbert. Then there's t- tomorrow night, which Channing can talk a little bit about, uh, is the rebirth of the Strategy and Soul Revolutionary Organizers Film and Book Club. And Channing, maybe you could tell us a little bit about what's going on tomorrow night, because we'd like a lot of our listeners to today to become video watchers tomorrow night. Um, yeah, so tomorrow, uh, and I know the name has Thursday night, but we'll be having it on Wednesday night uh, this month. But tomorrow we want to celebrate the um, revolutionary tradition of George Jackson and celebrate Black August. And you know we've done over 15 different film club meetings showing about 15 different films, all very revolutionary. Um, to my surprise, actually, when I go on to other spaces in the movement, some folks have not heard about a lot of the films that we've been watching. So, for example, I'm in the fellowship and I was able to introduce The Battle of Algiers and The Salt of the Earth as two films to one organizer who was looking for something very revolutionary and said he doesn't watch TV because there's nothing revolutionary on TV. (laughs) So tomorrow we'll be watching reflections of George Floyd as part of the 99 Books Project. And I think we have... George Jackson. I'm sorry. George Jackson, that was a Freudian slip, um, about um, his life and, you know, the movement that he uh, helped to strike. And so we hope that you'll be able to make it. It'll be tomorrow at 6 p.m. on Zoom. And if you're interested, you can visit thestrategycenter.org to RSVP for the Zoom link. Well, the phenomenon, I've been, I still have not heard and seen everything, but there are, as you'll hear the audios today, There are two nine-minute interviews with Angela Davis on George Jackson on video. There's a wonderful uh, audio of George Jackson on fascism, which we're going to begin with today. Uh, Then we're going to go to Angela. There's a long interview with Eddie Conway, who was a political prisoner for 43 years. Unbelievable. And is out now with the Real News Network, and his commentary is great. There's an audio, which you are going to play, of James Baldwin on George Jackson, which we're going to play both today and tomorrow night. And there's a video, which you're going to hear as an audio, if it makes everything you're hearing right now will be audio, of me, Eric Mann, on George Jackson. And we're going to try to get even more (laughs) on the evening. It'll be a long evening, but worth it. Uh, Before I... Uh, play the first one with George Jackson. Um, just a couple of thoughts, and then Claude, of course, I'll come back to you as well. Um, I feel, you know, I'm a pretty optimistic person, but I feel a tremendous sense of loss of the mass consciousness that's been produced by now, 41 years of the counter-revolution, beginning with uh, Ronald Reagan and uh, Margaret Thatcher in 1979, 1980. And it's been a literal counter-revolution, a literal, let's crush all the revolutionary ideas, crush the people, crush the books, and let's rewrite a disgusting history of those people. So when people say, I want to study black history, 
beware of what you're studying because uh, there is no such thing as black history. There are specific people with specific interpretations of black history. So you're going to hear about George Jackson, but I just wanted to read as an example for some of you who don't know. I just opened up Soledad, brother, and the, the great thing about George Jackson is he's so multifaceted in his brain, what he's thinking about. Uh, I was a prisoner for 18 months. He was a prisoner his pretty much whole life. But I'm going to read from June 1968, and then we're going to go to his interview, uh, D'Angelo, okay, in about a few minutes. So he's writing to his mom. Dear Georgia, I'll be out of here soon, perhaps in eight or nine months. I have 18 months clean when I go to the board in December. You know that I have my time in. That's what they want, time and clean conduct. And I only say that because I was denied parole twice. I was up for parole twice. And my letter to my mom was almost word for word like this. And while I was not George Jackson, it still hurt. Because you really think you're playing by the system's rules even. And the system just makes up the rules as they go along. So he did not get parole. It's always job getting along with our friends and relatives. So now he's philosophizing about relationships. Establishing lasting and mutually rewarding relationships always calls for delicacy, sensitivity, and mainly suppression of the ego. One simply cannot say the first thing that comes into mind with no regard for the next person's ego problems. If I constantly say or do the things that make the next person feel is of challenging this person, his capacity to reason, his standing as an individual. How can I ever hope to relate to him? Now, people in the world over are not the same, but those that we meet here in the U.S. are generally of a single type. By and large, they are all fools, intellectual non-persons, emotional half-wits, status symbols, supervisory positions, and petty power motivate their very act. Personal, individual, financial success at any price is their social ethic, Mm. the only real standard upon which their conduct is built. Now, I just want to parenthesis say, welcome to the most brilliant discussion of the Trump voter and half the the Democratic voters as well. Um, For us blacks in particular, this is a nightmare proposition. When this standard, this criterion for the measurement of individual merit and worth in the society is applied to us, measured against our standing or holding, we cannot help come out with a very low opinion of ourselves. From the womb to the tomb, this plays in our minds. We are not worth more than the amount of capital we can raise. That's why you see blacks pretending to be doing all right. That's why a black man will buy a new car, status symbol, before all meet, he will buy food for his child or clothes for his wife. There's more, much more, but I just wanted to hear a little of Joyce's, uh, George's many philosophical entries into the psychology of black and white. Go read the book, Soledad, brother, because now we're going into his analysis of fascism. And as you see, it's rooted in his very assessment of the human personality under imperialism. I, I just want to say before we get there that that, it's so interesting because I remember reading that right after high school. And I sort of got it, but I didn't understand how deeply political it was at the time. 
But the way that he writes it is so ingenious that, yeah, everyone, every black student can read that and like, yeah, that is why they're buying SUVs before they're buying their houses, right? And so, but now hearing it, you know, however many years later, um, it's so, you know, it speaks to everything that I've learned during the city council race, as an example. Why are people so afraid to, say, defund the school, defund the police? And what you were explaining to me was just that, that people, everyone's scared. They have their little piece of capital and you're threatening that by saying, get rid of the police. And so just so many, so many philosophical thoughts in that little piece. That's great. Uh, Claude, if it's okay, will you both introduce the clip, uh, uh, George, on fascism, and then you'll be the first one to comment afterwards? Well, maybe, maybe Nathaniel wants to speak to that. Okay. Sure. Um, <clears throat> Uh, I believe the clip you're going to play is uh, George speaking on fascism from an interview that he did uh, uh, inside of San Quentin with uh, Karen Wald. And it's one of a number of clips that uh, you can find both on our larger um, search site, search.freedomarchives.org. And in this particular case, of course, we've, uh, you know, we included that, you know, with our focus on George in the 99 book site. Um, so I guess with that, we can just uh, dive in. I begin with the idea that fascism has already taken over this country. It took over uh, uh, during the Depression. And uh, all above-ground political organizations has, has got to proceed. I mean, anything that's effective, that's really revolutionary, I'm convinced. I'm convinced if it's really revolutionary because of the existence of the fascist state, there's going to be there's going to be resistance to every move that we make. Consequently, it's going to take a lot of brain work, footwork to avoid the pitfalls and traps that the, that the fascists are going to set up for us. I'm convinced that fascism exists in this country, and uh, if you think about it a while, you understand that uh, one of the principal uh, cornerstones of fascism is disguise. There's two or three faces of fascism. The uh, the original thing where it begins as a almost uh, anti-establishment, uh, intellectualized uh, movement. Once it sees, seizes power, its com- whole complexion changes into uh, uh, one of uh, terrorism, you know, the suppression of vanguard parties and demobilization of uh, the lower classes. Uh, when it goes into its third state, as it has done here in the United States, I'm convinced that the United States has taken fascism to its apex. And we're in the third state. We're living in the third state here in the United States. And it's not necessary for the fascists to uh, uh, perpetuate themselves, to maintain themselves any longer with the uh, out-and-out brutal force. The impressions that we get from uh, the movies and from the propaganda system that fascism is is a period of doors being kicked down and people being gunned down in concentration camps, that's just a transitory uh, period of uh, fascism. Once it's established itself and is in power securely, then uh, the whole complexion of the movement changes altogether. They have then control of uh, the mass uh, opinion molding machinery, and uh, the upper classes have their governing elites to uh, to affect their ideas and to perpetuate themselves. And uh, whether the essence of fascism is kind of revolution. 
any political, real opposition political uh, activity that's going to uh, uh, prevail after the fact of the emergence of the fascist state has to be uh, very, very subtle and has to be, uh, it has to carry a, a threat, a latent threat. Uh, anything that we do that is really revolutionary is going to be contested. I can give you a thousand examples. I'm talking about the obituaries, the Panthers, and uh, all the others. I'm convinced that fascism exists in this country, and consequently, my political uh, approach to uh, antithesis after the establishment of the fact of fascism has to be a cultural revolutionary thing. We have too many convinced uh, Americans. Americanism is fascism in itself, right from the beginning. But uh, we have too many convinced fascists in this country who are willing to uh, protect it to the death. Uh, how can we attack at the productive point? An attack, a simple, direct attack at the productive point at the plant. It's absurd. Uh, the interest is fortified. It's been fortified. Uh, yeah, the opposition is well aware of Lenin. Very, very, very up on Lenin and very, well, Mussolini, the architect of the first uh, successful fascist state, was at one time uh, a communist. And uh, who could possibly be the best architect of a contrapositive mobilization of, uh, of people's movements than a fascist, a guy who's been trained all, I mean, uh, than a communist, a guy who's been trained all his life in uh, scientific methods of uh, socialist organization. Uh, they're up on us. They know about our old ways of organizing. And then, uh, you know, after the war, the, the consumer's market, the cornucopia of uh, cheap, mass-produced, uh, uh, the flea market, that's part of the continuing uh, basis of compromise. Uh, some people's demands are being met, see? And they're convinced that the American way is the right way. Uh, as fascism emerged and advanced and, and took hold, it became impossible for us to use old methods. They're up on many. I'm convinced that uh, from here, where we stand right now, the only way to advance revolutionary consciousness is to reestablish the feeling of uh, community, reestablish our, uh, our class consciousness, is to uh, create revolutionary culture. I, I, I believe in the commune, the ideal of the central city communes. And uh, through the communes, uh, as we feel in vacuums that the power elite or the governing elite and the upper classes have, uh, have left, as we feel in these vacuums and give people something to hold, something to defend, as we extend our programs, as we extend our programs into significant areas uh, attacking uh, property relations, We'll, we'll be striking two blows at one time. We'll, we'll be re-educating, as you emphasize. We'll be re-educating and we'll be preparing the people to uh, defend themselves. This is the old thing about the people aren't ready. Now, that's a, it's a presuming that the people aren't, uh, aren't willing or capable or, or have enough uh, brain power, you know, if they have the, uh, the thought capacity to act in their own defense. And uh, we counteract this by giving them something to defend, something to hold. And as our programs extend into the significant areas of uh, property rights enjoyed by the fascists, 
then we'll be moving into military activity. Um, for an, ex an example, I'll give you a brief example. What the hell, what the hell, what uses a rent strike if we allow the pigs to move in and beat everybody up and set them out on the street? You dig? See what I'm saying? Uh, it's uh, very simple to uh, convince the people with our political elements that they should withhold uh, their rent as a positive material gain for them to uh, go along with the program. But we make no advance whatsoever in revolutionary consciousness and class consciousness, rebuilding of class consciousness. After the fact of, of uh, fascism, uh, it means that we had to first reestablish class consciousness or revolutionary consciousness or whatever you choose to call it. Uh, we have to reestablish the sense of community. Fascism destroys the sense of community and, uh, you know, among the lower classes. And then the upper classes, uh, they uh, strengthen their sense of community. The so-termed uh, diversification of stock ownership. Uh, well, what it did actually was create a great community of interest among the uh, upper classes. They uh, are no longer interested in the survival of their one individual concern or firm. Uh, fascism means that this upper class is, is, is now concerned with the general survival of the whole business system. This is a business-based elite, a business-based upper class, and uh, they no longer compete with each other. They have a great community of interest. We have to establish a community of interest of our own from the bottom. Consequently, uh, that means uh, uh, advancing along a, a, a cultural, revolutionary, communal form. And it makes a great deal of sense what uh, Huey Newton and the brothers are saying. We have to prove to the world and to this country and to the fascists that the concentration camp technique will not work on us. That's our whole job right now. Later on, once out, uh, yeah, it'll be a little different. It'll be a little different. Well, what, George, uh, pretty wow. So to our listeners, you know, we're always trying to get you to do something. So several things. The first thing is I'm going to comment on George, and then I want Claude and others as well. 818-985-5735. Uh, George said that we need a central city commune and that the entire fight is going to be in the, in the realm of the cultural revolution. It's also, and I've been working on this, about um, enclaves, you know, revolutionary enclaves, like our organization has strategy and soul. We have a Revolutionary Organizers uh, Film and Book Club, which we want you to go on thestrategycenter.org and register for tomorrow night at 6 because you'll be hearing a lot more people and seeing a lot more people. Notice that while George focuses a lot on, not in this particular talk, about revolutionary violence, Class consciousness is the central thing he and all successful organizers are trying to figure out. How do you get black people in particular to have a race and class consciousness uh, that transcends fighting for specific things? Now, I would disagree with George on the rent strike, having organized some of them. I think if they're done by Alinsky, it's sort of, you deserve this, go fight this. And then when they take it away, you got nothing. But if it's organized by the newer community union project or the SNCC or SDS or other groups, we said, look, 
the landlord's in with the police. We can't guarantee that you're going to win this, but you have the right to withhold this. And the, you have to join the Newark Community Union Project because if you're just joining us to think we can guarantee you that the slumlord is going to fix up your apartment, we don't want to do this because we don't have enough power, as George pointed out. But you may win. We have a plan to win. But if we do not win the specific objectives, we need you to join the revolutionary movement because we've got to deal with the police down the street. We've got to deal with the store owner stealing your stuff, that your kid is going to an inferior school. And again, the police, the police, the police. Do you want to change the system or you just want to get uh, a better apartment? You deserve a better apartment, but if we don't change the system, you ain't going to get a better apartment. And out of that talking, we were able to get people to both participate in rent strikes and participate in the political education that George was talking about. But, of course, the main thing is what a just brilliantly complex mind and what a fantastic interview. Claude, anything you want to share with us on this? Well, the... There's something about the context in which he's also arguing about fascism. Um, And in this period of time, you know, this interview was mid-1971, I want to guess. Right. Um, There was a lot of debate about how how to understand the state, the United States government, in the context of world events. Right. And what stood out for me at the time and also now in, you know, having re-listened several times is that there was an argument that the most oppressed are experiencing the power of the state in a very different way. And it had to, he doesn't talk about it in this particular uh, conversation about fascism, but he does in other places. The, the whole idea, the emergence of a sense of internalized colonial relations right. to the state. And so his argument about fascism really is couched in that context. Yes. And I think one of the things that Claude is saying is that he and I, you know, we would not just read one or listen to one eight-minute thing. We read, so their brother, we listen to all his stuff. Uh, we read Lenin, we read Marx, we read Mao, we read uh, The Black Woman by Tony Cade Bambara. We read, 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 and that's why we have a bookstore called the Strategy and Soul Bookstore. That's why Chani and I work on Voices for the Frontlines, 818-985-5735. Now, just a minute, uh, what you said was great, Claude, really was. Um how do we get our listeners to more participate in fun drives when we're doing heavier programming? Now, we did a great show on Paul Robeson. As you know, we offered the four DVD Criterion Collection for $250. They must have run this thing seven or eight times. Every time I would turn on the radio, there would be me. And the reason is because we just... There's no question, as a fundraiser, we just nailed that. I mean, it was one of those magical things. You had Alan Minsky in the studio. You have Channing in the studio. You had Sidney Poitier in his brilliant 
essay about Robeson. And then you had the sensational voice of and life of Paul Robeson. So, and it was like magic. And they can keep playing and playing it because every time they call me, $1,300, $1,500, $1,800, you're raised in one hour. Other times, we have shows, and I think they've been great shows, and they are during Fund Drive, and the results are not as great. So I'm asking you, because you're going to hopefully come to the film club tomorrow at 6 and go on uh, org and register, and because you want to continue to hear Angela Davis and maybe a little of me, more, more importantly, Angela Davis, cause, and also because you want to support the work of the Freedom Archives, who you should get to know. Uh, they've done all this work, but now they're on a radio show, at least reaching thousands of people, and you could reach them at the freedomarchives.org. Is that correct? That's correct. And you can see this amazing, amazing exhibition. If you go type in 99 books at freedomarchives.org. Dot. No? Dot. 99 books dot. Yeah. Freedomarchives.org. Got it. So check it out. Check out the film club tomorrow night, and we're going to continue, but please call 818-985-5735 and say that you want to do it in honor of George Jackson. You want to help do it in honor of the Strategy Center, and you want to do it in honor of uh, Freedom Archives. You just want good programming on KPFK, and I'm not selling you any hand cream. I'm just, and I'm not selling you any, you get it. I'm selling you revolution, and I hope you want to continue. Um, Who would like to frame the Angela Davis? We're going to use part one. Tomorrow night, this is two beautiful nine-minute video interviews with Angela Davis that you're going to hear tomorrow night uh, and see tomorrow night on the film club at 6 p.m. But we're going to play the first one. Uh, would either of you like to frame the context of this uh, statement by Angela? Um, well, we can try to. You know, the, the I don't want to know. I don't know if it's humorous or not. But when you spend so much time working on something, you both have a very intimate idea of what is in there, and also sometimes it runs together. So. Right. Um, in, in that vein, um, you know, I, I maybe to introduce the Angela piece, uh, maybe I can just say something very briefly on a question you asked earlier, which was like the, what was it like to make this happen? Sure, please, um, please. So, um, you know, on the 99 books, or for the 99 books project, which, uh, as you said, 99books.freedomarchives.org, you know, in a, in a certain way, it can kind of break down into four different... Um, pieces and, and by talking about the pieces it'll I'll frame Angela and, and then cover the what was it like to make this happen. So um, you know one of the things we wanted to do was go back through our archival materials that we have been storing for the past twenty years as the Freedom Archives and really, you know, comb through them and, and really lift up resources that frame George as an educator and political thinker from things that were already in our archive. 
Um, one of the things we wanted to do to help connect things that happened in the past and what people are faced with today was to create curriculum. So essentially there's probably nine or ten activities, some which take as many as a couple days, some which are more one-off activities that basically uh, bring in themes that either George raised or uh, themes that have to do with the centrality of prisoner organizing or prison as a uh, foundational site for uh, knowledge production um, and, you know, create curriculum that people can work through and learn from. Uh, we also wanted to provide documents and resources to kind of supplement folks who might have uh, some entry information into George Jackson or have heard of the name but might not necessarily uh, have the, the deeper information about his life or might not have read Soledad Brother or some of the other, you know, your book, Comrade George, or any of the other resources out there. And the final piece, and this is where I'll frame Angela, is to do these reflections where basically not to have people, uh, and especially people who knew George, kind of do a cookie-cutter interview where they just, um, you know, recall, you know, uh, how they knew him or, um, you know, what they think about, uh, you know, what, what they think happened on that day one way or the other, anything like that, but to really focus on how do we understand um, George as foundational in movement building and theorizing revolution. And so one of the things that Angela really does is to take on that question as how did George impact what was the development of the revolutionary movement, specifically as related to uh, political thinking and intellectualism, and how is that a key part of how we actually envision the world that we're struggling for. Um, so I believe in the first clip, Angela briefly discusses how she met George and then kind of launches into some of his larger impacts in terms of how, uh, how his life has actually resonated far beyond the you know, cells that he was kept in solitary confinement for many, many years. Thanks, Nathaniel. That was great. I mean, one thing I'd add is that, you know, I was in prison for 18 months, and uh, uh, there's a wonderful quote in the first section where Angela says, you know, I was fired from the University of California for my Marxist views, and I didn't realize that the prison was such a, a dynamic center of knowledge production and knowledge formulation. I realized after all that George should have taught my class at UCLA. Uh, this is, I, I'm struck by, you know, they were lovers and they were no dear, dear friends. And her, the vitality that she still brings him to life in the present is very moving to me. So with that, the great Angela Davis on I George Jackson. George Jackson for the first time uh, in connection with the organizing efforts uh, around the case of the Soledad brothers uh, in Los Angeles. I was teaching at UCLA. I had been fired from my position and um, had a court injunction that allowed me to continue to teach. Uh, at the same time, I was having to fight for my right to teach. Uh, I met George in person uh, when I traveled to Salinas uh, with a group of uh, people from the campus at UCLA to attend one of the hearings uh, 
that was uh, happening. By that time, we had done a lot of organizing on the campus, and we brought people from Southern California uh, to participate in the hearing. And uh, that was the very first time I saw him. Uh, and I didn't really have the opportunity to have a long conversation with him because you know what conditions are like uh, 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 when you have prisoners who are uh, uh, shackled and chained uh, inside of a courtroom. Um, uh, but I did get to uh, know his family well and embarked upon a um, correspondence with him. So. My um, my relationship with George was largely through the letters uh, we exchanged around a, a whole range of issues. I was totally impressed uh, uh, because here was someone who had been in prison uh, for um, almost 10 years. Uh, uh, he was extremely learned. Uh, you know, I remember thinking at, uh, at some point, maybe George should be teaching the course that you know, I'm supposed to be teaching on uh, Marxism here at the university. Uh, but it was the first time that uh, I uh, came to be aware of the prison as a site for learning and knowledge production. Uh, and I think the impact that George had on other people behind bars was to encourage them uh, to learn how to live the life of the, the, the mind to a certain extent, to emphasize intellectual work uh, as a way to uh, retain some modicum of freedom behind bars. Very soon I realized that, that he wasn't simply an individual. He wasn't uh, simply an extraordinary individual, which he was. Uh, but at the same time, uh, uh, he encouraged community and collective efforts and political education. Uh, and uh, um, it was really an eye-opening experience uh, because I had been doing work around political prisoners for quite some time. Uh, 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 but this was the first time I began to uh, get a sense of uh, life under those conditions, uh, and not only the uh, oppressiveness of, of prison life, uh, but the ways in which uh, George and others were uh, using that time to uh, de learn and develop themselves. And I, I suppose what was, um, what was most impressive to me, and this has remained with me to this date, is the, is the extent to which um, he was totally aware of what was happening in the so-called free world uh, and had ideas uh, that were profound. And, and to this day, it, 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 I always reflect on the fact that if we could use all of the intellectual energy of people who have spent all of this time uh, teaching themselves and learning, that we could perhaps really begin to address these uh, huge problems uh, in our society. We would figure out, you know, how to begin to move in a, in a more radical, more progressive direction. In response to uh, the 
question about uh, uh, the the impact George had on my own capacity uh, to think more deeply about uh, uh, the institution of the prison. You know what? What I should say first is that uh, that my focus had been on political prisoners. I had been involved in many campaigns to uh, free uh, political prisoners, whether it was uh, you know Huey Newton. Uh, whether it was Lolita Lebron, uh, whether, whether it was uh, Los Siete de la Raza. Uh, this was my connection uh, with um, the prison. And that actually had a long history because uh, when, I was, when I was much younger, um, I uh, was a part of a community that involved people who ended up going to prison under, uh, during the McCarthy era, uh, this, you know, my parents were uh, friends with people who were sought by uh, the, the the FBI because of their members in, because of their membership in the Communist Party. Uh, so I always tended to think about uh, the that institution as the the place where uh, political radicals were uh, uh, those who were uh, who constituted explicit dangers to the state. Uh, I didn't. I, I didn't think about um, uh, the the larger uh, functioning of the prison as a as an apparatus of racism and repression until I began to have this correspondence with George, and it, it, it struck me that uh, uh, we can't simply talk about people who are in prison for their political beliefs and and activities, but we have to begin to analyze uh, the institution um, as, uh, as, as a whole. Uh, and that, um, that, that, that was uh, a really powerful insight. Uh, and, you know, when one has been affected so long by the, um, by the prevailing ideology and you don't, uh, you know, question uh, the fact that uh, uh, you know, this person is a criminal, so obviously that person belongs in prison. Um, it, it, when one realizes uh, that um, these constructions are all ideological, uh, it, it opens up uh, so many new vistas. Uh, and it allowed me to think not only uh, as uh, George had formulated about the way in which the institution itself functioned as an apparatus of racism uh, uh, and therefore simply focusing on political prisoners did not address uh, the, the, the larger function of the institution. And I also recognized uh, that uh, as long as, as I was um, living in the so-called free world, I tended to think about uh, prisons, jails, and prisons as, uh, as 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 affecting men primarily, and so as a result of uh, my thinking about the institution in ways that uh, George introduced to me, I began to think about the specific uh, role of the institution in relation to women. Um, 
because what I experienced was something I had never, ever imagined, uh, because all of the literature I had read, all of the conversations had been around uh, men. So, so I can say that uh, my uh, engagement with George had a profound and transformative effect on my thinking. Um, well, this is, uh, again, Claude Nathaniel, thank you, and Angela Davis, thank you. Um, how do you explain that, I mean, you don't want to use sort of superficial um, superlatives, but it's fair to say that Angela Davis is a genius, but what people don't understand is that the smarter you are, the more you understand what you don't know. And you meet other people who challenge your thinking. This is a whole discussion of her raising consciousness in her interaction with George and then moving from certain things with George to other concepts and to be exposed with other people as well as she's influencing the thoughts of others. So you're right. You know, we would say, uh, free George Jackson, all political prisoners. But the strategy center has been saying, free the U.S. 2.5 million, free the 1 million prisoners now. Because we got out of that consciousness changing, which Angela was talking about, that George was a political prisoner, not because he became political, which he was, but when George was arrested for allegedly stealing $70 from a gas station, which he did not do, I was told by a part of the system, uh, uh, a public defender, to take a plea, and nobody explained to him that the plea for one year was part of an indeterminate sentence, which is one year to life, and that every year you basically signed up for a life sentence unless they paroled you out of it. So George became one of the leading political uh, prisoners, but he was, if we better understand that the average black person who walks in over what? Uh, passing a $20 bill, selling artificial cigarettes, stop sign, broken this, broken that, broke in, didn't break in. The mass arrest of black people, the police state coming down on black people every single minute of the day that's why we call black prisoners political prisoners, and that's what the Panthers did. But on Angela Davis, my point is, what a kind of brilliant mind. And if you can only imagine the intellectual chemistry between her and George, because she didn't focus on what she taught George. Uh, but it could be pretty obvious that they taught each other, which is why they loved each other so much and why they influenced each other so much. Um, Let's see, uh, 818-985-5735. If there's two things, three things I want you to make sure you get out of this program, I'm not sure we're going to have time to play my clip, which is fine. We'll play that tomorrow night. Because um, I, I, I want to make sure we, as organizers, the first thing is to get to know the Freedom Archives. I need to get to know it better, and I relate to it quite a bit. All the work they're doing on curriculum development is not fully realized unless you use the curriculum. And I think all of us, for those of you teaching in the public schools, for those at the Strategy Center, the development of course materials and deep reading and deep listening is going to be a central part of what we want to do. So we're going to be using Freedom Archives materials greater. 
if you want to support their work uh, in any way, uh, you can reach them at the freedomarchives.org. I believe that's right, and they'll explain. The second thing is give money to KPFK, 818-985-5735. I mean, where are you going to get Angela Davis and George Jackson, folks? I'm sorry. I'm already, I took so many notes on the two of them that, you know, it's like a going to school. So, so KPFK, please call in and for any amount of money. If you give $100 or more, you can get a copy of my book, Playbook for Progressives. The 16 Qualities of the Successful Organizer. If you still want to give $250, you can get the Paul Robeson 4 DVD set on the Criterion Collection. They will know it because they have it in in in, uh, in stock. And then tomorrow night, um, the Strategy and Soul Revolutionary Organizers Film and Book Club is, is, is comes out of a lot of traditions. It comes out of the League of Revolutionary Black Workers comes out of the Strategy Center's long history of political education. Imagine having a film club that tomorrow night you will see, see, you'll hear again the George Jackson uh, eight minutes on fascism. And I assume you didn't get it all, folks, so don't worry about it. Uh, You'll hear both uh, of the two nine-minute Angela Davis. You will see the two nine-minute Angela Davis interviews. You'll see a great interview with a young uh, man, young man my age, Eddie Conway on George Jackson. You will hear a brilliant thing about James Baldwin on George Jackson and the failure of European culture. And you hear Eric Mann on George Jackson as a black revolutionary intellectual. Uh, C. I, I'm using C in here a, a little interchangeably. It's mainly going to be video, folks. You get it? There'll be two non-video audio, which will be George Jackson and James Baldwin. We want to get 100 or more people to be on that program tomorrow night. So please go on the strategycenter.org. Register. We'll see you tomorrow night at 6. It's going to be rather amazing. And Channing and I still have to do more preparation to get ready for tomorrow night. Channing, last thoughts, and then I'm going to go to Claude and Nathaniel and... uh, Make sure everybody gets their last word in. Yeah, I think the last thought on the clip on Angela is that, and every clip on the 99 books is that you just learned that uh, George Jackson was so disciplined intellectually, physically, and in every way that, and especially with Angela's clip, realizing that you might not be physically behind bars, but if you at all think that you're not imprisoned, then you're delusional. And the point that she's making is that anyone that's in prison, it's really up to you to figure out how do you use your time and how do you become more disciplined to be a very uh, intellectually revolutionary person to move everything to the left. And I think that's you know, that's my own biggest reflection. And, you know, I'm a very disciplined person in the movement, but I realize in my own stuff, I don't read enough. Uh, I don't read enough books. I read a lot of articles about specific things, which tends to be a very uh, Alinskyist uh, characteristic, in my opinion. <laughs> um, but it does push me. Like, I've read Soledad Brother, but I need to reread it in a in a different moment in my life so I understand it. So... 
just a lot more discipline. I think that's the biggest lesson. Claude, and then Nathaniel, and if we have a minute, Eric. Um, well, I, I don't really want to dive into some other set of ideas. I do want to thank you for, um, you know, giving us an opportunity to be on the air and in particular to draw people's attention um, to this body of work, not because it's our body of work, but we really think we've, you know, gathered some materials together that allow people to understand either for the first time or to rethink how we understand uh, a leading revolutionary thinker and teacher and organizer. And um, that, you know, that was the goal of putting it together. And we hope that people can take advantage of the fact that these resources are concentrated on that particular web page. So thanks again for, for having us. It's a pleasure. Nathaniel? Yeah, I would just, um, I would also just say thank you. I appreciate uh, being here and also, you know, your uh, participation in the project. Um, I would also hesitate to bring up anything super new, but I would just name one thing to me that's important is the the practice of collective engagement. So it's not just about, you know, it's not just about reading or or thinking as an individual, but it's also about when you put those things into a collective and are actually doing that in a communal setting, the power of that. Um, and then the only other thing I would just say would um, uh, be that also one thing that really struck me throughout this project was how engaged George was in what was going on around the world. And so of the list of 99 books that were found in his cell, um, you know, many, many, many of them are about third world struggles, are about uh, global economics, are, are about uh, other thinkers and philosophers from uh, revolutionary thinkers and philosophers from different countries. And so also not just engaging collectively, but also engaging outside of our cultural and local lens, I think is also really important. Well, you know, uh, as we take Nina Simona out, uh, I always said when I was working at General Motors, what a wonderful window on the world, right? And when I was in prison, I thought, what a wonderful window on the world. Because as a prisoner, how, how much better can you see U.S. imperialism than anybody else who doesn't want to see it? That's right. So uh, we saw it, and we read, and we talked about the third world, as you said, Nathaniel. Trust us. We talked about Cuba and Africa and Lumumba and, and Yes Channing, books, books, books. So congratulations to the Freedom Archive. Check them out more. Thanks to our listeners, 818-985-5735. Not too late to contribute. We'll come up with something real good tomorrow, next week at, at 2, 3. But check us out at thestrategycenter.org and register for the amazing film club tomorrow night at 6. D'Angelo Jones, thank you for everything, and we'll see you next Tuesday. All power to the people.